Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, hello and welcome back to Kindled. I'm excited to bring to you a conversation with Nancy Piercy about the toxic war on masculinity. Before I give you that conversation, I want to remind you that today is actually the final, well, this weekend is the final uh, couple days you can leave a review, send me a screenshot of your review, and be entered to win $100 to Crossway and some merch from my shop. So if you want to do that, you can message me a screenshot of your review at Haley.Kindled or email it to me at Haley, H-A-L-E-Y, at KindledPodcast.com. Okay, here's my conversation with Nancy Piercy. All right. So today on Kindled, I'm chatting with Professor Nancy Piercy. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, before we launch into our conversation, why don't you share with listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I teach at Houston Christian University. I'm a professor of apologetics. Can you imagine that? I get to talk all day about how we know Christianity is true. It's my dream job. <laughs> and other than that, I write books. So I'm a, I'm a scholar in residence, which is their way of saying that part of my job can be devoted to the writing of my books. And so um, in many ways, that's the main thing I do actually is write books and speak on podcasts and conferences mm-hmm. and so on about, about my books. That's so, that's so awesome. And you've written um, several books. Uh, your most recent one is what we're going to talk about today, but I've got to say, I also am a big fan of Love Thy Body. Um, that one was just so helpful for me in understanding how to speak to so many of the issues we are facing today in culture that are even seeping into the church, you know, when it comes to gender and sexuality and, you know, the Christian response. So I appreciate your work that you've, uh, that you've been pouring your life into. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Love Thy Body is still going strong because, um, <laughs> Uh, it, it deals with issues like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and these mm-hmm. issues are still exploding, especially mm-hmm. transgenderism. So I have people telling me it came out in what 2018, and I have people telling me it's more relevant now than when you wrote it. So yeah, so this is true. It it's it's uh, kept up with our times. People people say I looked at the date and I thought, what you wrote it several years ago? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah. These are the Which- issues on the front burner now. Right. And I think that's like, you know, definitely a testament to the work you're doing and how it is. So uh, what's unique, I think, about your approach is just the research based aspect. You know, like as Christians, we can cling to the truths that that the scripture shares. But in the face of, you know, a, a world that is just dependent on what the science says, you know, and only wants to hear from the research, uh, you're actually speaking to those issues as well. And so I think that's really powerful. Yeah, that's I, I like that too. Um, especially my new book, which we're gonna talk about today, um, mm-hmm. The Toxic War and Masculinity, is my most fact-based book. Mm-hmm. Um, because I deal both with the sociological data on Christian men, and then I have uh, historical facts on how the secular script for masculinity 
emerged, how it developed over time so that, you know, you, you can't really stand against a social trend unless you know where it came from, how it developed and how and how to have a critical grid. You know, mm-hmm. it, the last one is proving more and more important because, as you said, these ideas are seeping into the church. And I, I just I just got an email from a former graduate student who now teaches high school. Mm. And she said, all of my junior and senior male students are fans of Andrew Tate. And she's teaching at a Christian classical school. Wow. So, um, so yeah, she's trying to think through that. How do I approach them on this? You know, mm-hmm. Andrew Tate's kind of what they like about him is the self-improvement part. But he's running a webcam business, which means only fans. You know, this is mm-hmm. essentially prostitution or at least pornography. So mm-hmm. how can we hold him up? So that I find that nowadays, if I want to say, well, what am I against? What am I arguing against in this book? It's sort of the Andrew Tate phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the response to, you know, toxic, the the culture that says, you know, masculinity is toxic is just to be like proud of being toxic, you know, like being proud of it, like boastful in it. Right. Instead of being like, no, you can't degrade masculinity. Uh, and, and actually that what the Andrew Tate version of that is, is not true masculinity. It's not it's not even remotely close to a man who stands up for, you know, some some those weaker than him, which is the definition, right? And protects and defends. And yeah, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Um, I know that's not what we were planning to talk about, but I, I think that's a super relevant, you know, example of this just because he has, I think that, you know, it, it's evidence that people are sick of the narrative, especially young boys, right? They're sick of kind of being made to feel um, like they are always the bad guy and that everything that's wrong with society is due to them. And so then they're responding to like the equal and opposite message right which is not necessarily the truth yes i, I mean the the reason i started to write this book is because my eye was caught by uh, the incredible hostility that has become socially acceptable to express against masculinity there was a washington post article titled why can't we hate men and i was stunned you know in a respected mainstream publication mm-hmm. a huffington post editor tweeted hashtag kill all men and a uh, you can buy T-shirts that say "So many men, so little ammunition." Mm. And then there are books that just bluntly are titled things like "I hate men" and "No good men," and "Are men necessary?" And what's worse is that some men have jumped on that bandwagon as well. A, a somewhat well-known male author wrote a book in which he said, "Talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer." And then the, uh, the other one that you may have seen, it's more recent, so it's not actually in the book, but it was in the news recently. The director of the movie Avatar was in the news saying testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. So no wonder, you know, one study I found said that 46% of men in America, so almost half of men in America, now agree with the statement, these days society seems to punish men just for acting like men. And so whether you agree with that or not, that's a lot of people who now think that that men and boys are sort of getting the, the bad end of the stick and that it's time to start saying, you know, it's a way that we can support men and boys. Can we have a positive view of masculinity? So the door is open for a message on, you know, what what is a positive, healthy, biblical view of masculinity? Right. Absolutely. So getting into that, you know, where did this idea come from that masculinity is toxic? 
Well, it, a lot of people might go back to, you know, second wave feminism, especially mm-hmm. on the manosphere, right? They all say, oh, it's it's those, those evil feminists. No, no, no. It's much earlier. You actually have to go back to the Industrial Revolution, because before that time, men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the f- family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men was much more of a caretaking role, you know, a responsibility for the family. Authority in itself back then meant you don't look out for your own interests. You look out for the common good of the whole. And so men were not supposed to look out for their personal interests. That was not their job. Their job was to look out for the family as a whole. And here's a sometimes interesting facts really crystallize it. Um, this was a surprise to me. The books on childbearing back then were addressed to men, to fathers. Mm-hmm. Like if you go today into a bookstore, they're all almost all addressed to mothers, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, the father was seen as the primary parent. And so he was the one who was addressed in the literature on childbearing. So where did we lose that? The Industrial, Revolu- uh, the Industrial Revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in American history, men were not working alongside their family, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Mm-hmm. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And this is where you see the language start to change. People get, began to protest. You know, They didn't like it. They protested that men were losing that caretaking ethos of the colonial era, that they were becoming individualistic, egocentric, self-interested, uh, look out for number one, make it at all costs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, greedy and acquisitive, to use the language of the day. And and even the language of idol, you know, that men were starting to turn work and career into an idol. You saw that language used as well. So in other words, the 19th century is when you first start seeing uh, negative characterizations of the male character. And so that kind of gives us a, an idea of, you know, how to fix it. If it happened because men were disconnected to their family, the solution has to be, can we find ways to reconnect fathers to their families again? You know, whether it's, you know, tweaking the workplace, advocating for more home-based work, uh, mm-hmm. the pandemic kind of changed our understanding of home-based work. A lot of fathers say, 65% of fathers in one study said they did not want to go back to the office full-time because they found out they liked being closer to their kids. Mm. In fact, this this is a, a more recent um, article, so it's not in the book, but the New York Times, of all places, just had an article in which the title was, During the Pandemic, Fathers Got Closer to Their Children, and They Don't Want to Lose That. Mm. So if... if if the industrial revolution was the problem, mm-hmm. uh, reconnecting fathers with their kids, with their families, I think is the main solution. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, as you were talking, you know, this won't be news to you. I know you, you know, way more on this than than I could ever hope to. But it made me think about how, you know, when feminism came along. Um, that would have obviously been then a reaction to the increased burden, probably as well, that women were shouldering, right, as a result of the fathers leaving the home. And so some of that with this women's liberation was inevitable when you took fathers away and you and you made mothers the primary and the only and sort of the back on which the family was carried at home. Um, not to say that there aren't distinct spheres and that each of us has our role, right, but that that would have been kind of part of 
you know, part of p- perhaps the the impetus for such a strong reaction against, you know, don't hold me down. I'm, I don't want to be stuck here. I can be more than a mother. There's so much more out there for me, right? It was like partially, potentially due to some of the negative, you know, impl- implications in the home for the dads going away in the industrial revolution, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely right on target. First of all, uh, fathers before that, did in fact, this was a surprise to me too, by the way, fathers spent just as much time with their children as mothers did in the colonial era. And so when fathers left the home, yes, you're right, there was a huge gap. And But it wasn't only fathers, it was also other adults. Remember, the larger uh, extended family was often in the same home and uh, older siblings who would help out with the younger siblings. And they had servants back then as well. So all of the other adults that had been there helping to raise the children and run the household were gone. One sociologist put it this way. She said uh, it was virtually traumatic on women because suddenly they had the whole burden of housekeeping and childcare all alone, you know, very solitary, very uh, isolated. So, yeah, that's a big part of it. And then uh, another part of it is that, you know, of why all of this sort of triggered the feminist movement is that remember when men's work was taken out of the home, so was women's work, right? Most of the manufacturer back then was household manufacturer. And so women were doing a lot of it. They were making clothes from scratch, right? From from uh, carding the wool or the cotton, you know, to weaving the cloth, to cutting it out and making it. They were making all of their food from scratch, um, baking bread, churning butter. They were usually help, helping to raise some of the livestock, the chickens and so on. Um, making buttons, making candles. I mean, all of this interesting, creative and varied work was taken out of the home as well. Mm-hmm. And so women were also cut off from economically productive work, which mm-hmm. also led to a decline in their status. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when the the uh, colonial household, well, they knew the mother's role was just as important as the father's role, both mm-hmm. economically and in, in parenting. You know, you couldn't do it on your own. It took both. When the mother, when the mother no longer had an economic contribution, in social terms, her status declined, and people began to say. Already in the nineteenth century, you could see there were um, uh, newspaper articles being written saying, "Oh, homemakers are just idle. You know, they're just living off their husbands' wages. They're mm-hmm. just, you know, as as we would today say, you know, watching TV and eating bonbons." That language started back then. So that denigration of the home and of the woman's work in the home also started in the 19th century. So that was another reason that women wanted to find more to do. They wanted to recover their economic contribution. There was a a Christian writer, you probably know Dorothy Sayers. Mm -hmm. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And she says, it is absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, Idiotic, I think is the word she actually used. It's idiotic to take women's work out of the home and then complain because she looks for new work, because right. of course women want to work. And and then I also take it back to the cultural mandate. Mm-hmm. So half of my students know that term and half don't. But the cultural mandate is a term used for in Genesis when God creates the first human couple. Right? He's created the physical universe, the plants and the animals. He creates the first human couple. And what is the first thing he says to them? He tells them why he created them. What's their purpose? What's their job description? Mm-hmm. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And be fruitful and multiply, you know, in the highly streamlined language of Genesis, we can unpack that. 
because it starts with the family, but historically all the social institutions grow out of the family, the church, the school, the state, the marketplace, they all Mm -hmm. grow out of the family. And so it means, the first phrase uh, means uh, create all of the social institutions. And the second phrase, subdue the earth, means harness the natural resources. So of course, most cultures start with agriculture, farming, but then it goes to mining and technology and inventing machines and computers and uh, Mm -hmm. composing music. I uh, have students that will come on composing music and I play the violin. So I said to him, what's the violin made out of wood? (laughs) What's the bow made out of horsehair? So all the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. Both men and women were given the cultural mandate, which means it's not it's not just women's job to be fruitful. And it's Mm -hmm. not just men's job, you know, to harness the natural Mm -hmm. resources. Both of them were given that. And so men are not happy if they're not connected to their children. Men find their deepest fulfillment in their family relationships, like we all do. And women also are made to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was right for them to say, wait a minute, the Industrial Revolution really robbed us of something that's important to women made in God's image mm-hmm. and uh, commanded to live out the cultural mandate. So all of that went into answering your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The feminist movement, like many secular movements, focused on a lot of problems that were valid problems. It's the solutions that are often wrong. I want to interrupt this episode to tell you about a new sponsor, and that is Good Book Mom. If you are a mom in 2023 or 24, whatever year you're listening to this in, you understand just how important it has become that we know what is in the books that our kids are reading. There is an agenda around every corner, it seems. And if you have voracious readers like I do who are going through a book every couple of days, you also don't have the time to pre-screen every single book they read. Um, And that's just not possible. So that's where the good book mom lists come in so critically and so clutch because Corey vets every single book that goes onto these lists for biblical worldview to make sure that they uh, don't have anything that you would not want your kid reading. It just gives you the peace of mind and, you know, the certainty that that your kid is going to be getting something that is going to edify them, build them up in truth and something that you would approve of yourself. Good Book Mom provides a membership, which is a curated book list for ages zero to 12, filtering everything through a biblical worldview. Some of the many lists include biblical marriage and gender book list, puberty and intimacy book list, uh, kids theology books, good enough for adults, and baby's beginner library list. Visit Good Book Mom to see everything that comes with the membership, including other premium content and a book club that is coming in October. You can get $5 off a year-long membership with the code Haley at goodbookmom.com. That is goodbookmom.com. Use the code Haley for $5 off. So many questions emerge out of what you just unpacked. And I think that's fascinating. Um, it, what I love what you said about how m- women were made to work and men were made to, you know, have their closest relationships with their families. And we have lost that. And I it makes so much sense too, that yes, they took the woman's work out of the home. And so women being made by God to be productive, to be, you know, effective in some sort of work went looking elsewhere for it. Um, So it makes perfect sense that, that, you know, Satan's version is always just like a 
a quarter turn away from God's original design, right? It's like, it's not completely opposite all the time. Often it's just a little bit skewed. It's like, hey, you were made to work and here's where. And just getting the location wrong or the the motivation wrong often. Um, yeah, and, and just just today, I posted a, a quote from my book on, on Twitter. It came up somehow. Um, did you know that according to recent studies, two thirds, 62% of mothers at home do contribute to the family income. We mm-hmm. all do. We, mm-hmm. I, you know, while mm-hmm. I was raising my kids, I was mm-hmm. always working part-time from home with my writing and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and 62% of women do. So it's not that unusual. For women are, in fact, trying to recreate the colonial household where they can have economically productive work while raising their children. Now mm-hmm. we need to help fathers realize, yeah, this is this is something you can do too. Um, that in both cases, I, both sexes, like you said a minute ago, both mothers and fathers are happier when they have a better balance of, of work and life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I love that. And that's something, you know, I've been able to do as well. I have three kids under the age of, you know, nine and under, and I've always contributed in some way as well, like you said, part-time from home. And there have been seasons, you know, I will say that I started to drift away from that and thought, okay, you know, um, I'm a web designer, for instance, I, I had a client who was asking me to come into the office once a week. And so I kind of said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And I gave on some of the values and the, you know, the priorities that I had always had in place that, you know, family comes first and children come first. I need to be there when you get home from school and all of those things. And I started to, you know, shift my priorities. And, um, and it was also in a season where God was providing because my husband was about to lose his job and I did become for a number of, you know, months, less than a year, the main source of income for our family. So in in a sense, you know, God was totally providing what we needed. But in another sense, I, I knew that what I was, the exchange I was making was not right. I knew that it was not sustainable. I knew that it couldn't last forever. I knew it shouldn't last forever. And it was again for a season. But when I finally ultimately kind of set that down and said, all right, I'm going to trust God with our family's finances. And I'm not going to continue to kind of prioritize work over family um, because there was a lot of factors to it that I won't get into. But when I finally did that, like I cannot express the the weight that came off of my shoulders. Like I had even started to have health issues with some thyroid issues and other things that were manifesting like literal physical symptoms of the burden that I was carrying of being provider where I am not meant to be the primary provider, you know, and I just, I, I will never, you know, I will never kind of be able to forget what it felt like to be shirking the role that I have in a sense and, um, and trading that for something else. Now I'm not saying there aren't situations or circumstances where women do need to work outside the home for some, you know, whatever, for in some circumstance, I realize that we live in a broken world and not everything is perfect, you know, the way that it should be or the ideal, but, you know, just that, I guess what I'm affirming is that there is a role given by God and it's important that we keep that role in its rightful place. Yeah. And, um, the other thing we have to do is, is, uh, help business and corporations realize that it's a good thing to encourage mm-hmm. family life. And this also happened during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, In my book, I quote CEOs who say things like this. One of them said, uh, we were always concerned about allowing for remote work, you know, for men or women, um, because we thought people would slough off, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, during that pandemic, that fear was completely exploded. We did not see any drop in productivity. 
And in fact, I quote another CEO who says, um, if you give parents time to be better parents, they end up being better workers. Yep. You know, they, find, they found in, um, across the board that, that parents were more motivated, more uh, focused. You know, if you have children to get home to, you're more focused. You may not come in as often. You might, you know, you don't work till uh, past past time. You don't come in on the weekends. But the time that you're there, you're more productive. And mm -hmm. I thought, okay, great. This is what we need. You know, people need to take these quotes <laughs> into their workplace mm -hmm. and say, look, you know, I I want to work two days from home. Or I had one student, uh, one of my grad students, who actually just left a work left work two days early to coach his son's soccer and basketball teams and his um his boss told him he was coasting and criticized him mm. but he said it really did not harm his career and when his sons got older they said we want to be a dad like you mm. which is a lot better than any workplace accolades okay. so so we have to work on both ends you know helping parents realize yes you know they are going they will be more fruitful you my my students were skeptical of this, but I read one study. It was like a meta study, finding that men report just as much work family conflict as women do. We tend to think that's a woman's problem, mm -hmm. but men do too. The numbers were exactly the same. That men say, I, you know, they really miss being with their families. They don't feel that they can express it as much because they'll be told, oh well, you're not committed enough to your work. But on on anonymous surveys, they say, oh yeah, you know, the heart wrenching you know, pain when I have to leave my children, when I can't go to their events. Um, so so we need to help fathers get in touch with their real internal sense of uh, of their own fulfillment in family, mm -hmm. family relationships. The, lo the longest study ever done on what contributes to male happiness. It was done by Harvard University. And they can do it because they keep track of all of their alumni. <laughs> and so this was an 80 year study and they found that it shattered all the stereotypes because as one therapist that I quote says, we have for too long thought that men get their main sense of fulfillment and sense of manhood from their career. We have, we have thought that family is kind of secondary. Well, according to this 80 year survey, what men got their greatest fulfillment from and happiness from was not career success. You know, it was not all the normal things, fame and accomplishment and so on. It was deep, rich relationships. Mm -hmm. And and we just don't think of that in terms of men. But the studies show clearly that men also, just as much as women, get their deepest fulfillment from relationships. I want to tell you about another new sponsor, and that is Cami Monet. Have you seen the watercolor delights and paper and party goods from Cami Monet? They are your one-stop shop for gifting and parties. If you love stationery and all things bright and beautiful, you will love Cami's cute shop. She's a watercolor artist, so everything is her own unique design, and she has lots of other curated finds from other small makers as well. Whether you just need a sweet card for a friend or you're planning your next celebration, Cami Monet will help you make everything a little more fun with adorable party wear and pretty paper packed with personality. Their shop motto is make everything fun and they live by that every day. They are also proud to stand for life and 10% of every purchase goes to pro-life ministries, specifically to choicesfriends.com, her local pro-life pregnancy center. 
and Choices Women's Clinic was founded to give women considering abortion somewhere to go before they decide, to give them a choice based on truth and the highest standard of care and medical services. It's a place where people can find hope, care, and support, and ultimately find life through Christ. So I am super excited to partner with Cami Monet, and you can use the code KINDLED for 20% off your first order at CamiMonet.com. That is C-A-M-I Monet, M-O-N-E-T dot com, and use the code KINDLED for 20% off your first order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, like we, we shouldn't be surprised by that as Christians because the Bible, obviously, like you said, the cultural mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and God doesn't ever command us to do something that doesn't enable us to glorify him. Right. And so it's like that pursuing that will be able to glorify God the greatest and you will be in turn most fulfilled and joyful and happy in that pursuit. And so, but like, like you said, I mean, I think it, we have just, the culture has taught and preached and indoctrinated such a different script for men around what is masculine, what is to be desired. You know, like we were saying earlier, the Andrew Tate aesthetic of being a a macho man, having women fawn after you, getting all the women you could want. I mean, that's masculinity. That's what TV sells us, internet, and now our phones and, you know, kids are being exposed earlier and earlier to these, these ideas. And, you know, so it's no surprise that we have men saying, you know, wow, I'm, I'm actually really unhappy in this. <laughs> I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled, even though I was sold this idea that if I just kept climbing the ladder, if I finally made partner, if I finally got to a C-level executive position, I would I would then have a- arrived. And that's just, we see that the emptiness of that. And we see that people are not being fulfilled by those things, even though that is what we've been taught to pursue. Yeah. I, I read several um, interviews with men, you know, lots of surveys and so on. And it was fascinating how many of them said they knew they would pay the daddy penalty. You know, they, they would not advance as quickly in their career. They might not get a raise as quickly, but they said it was completely worth it. Um, I, I have a whole chapter on fatherhood um, because, well, let's face it, father fathers are mocked and ridiculed in our culture today, right? No wonder mm-hmm. men think, you know, maybe they they're not going to want to be fathers because the cultural messages from from Homer Simpson to advertisements to um, did, did did you kids read the Berenstein Bears? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I had a, one son who just loved the Berenstein Bears, and 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 especially in the earlier ones, the father's always the doofus dad, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. bumbling idiot. And and so of course men are being you know demotivated to become fathers, mm-hmm. and so I, I do two things. First of all, I show where that came from because you know, we we all know that that's a, a phenomenon. Where did it come from? Again, it's the it's the industrial revolution, because mm-hmm. when men were taken out of the home, they did lose touch with their kids compared to you know mm-hmm. working side by side all day. They did begin to just not know their kids' feelings, their kids' thoughts. They they were unfamiliar with the family dynamics. And already in the 19th century, you see in the literature of the day, people began to say, you yeah, know, fathers are kind of irrelevant, aren't they? You know, they're kind of incompetent. You mm-hmm. know, they're, they're all thumbs, you know, when it comes to dealing with their kids. And so, it, it again, it's a product of having taken fathers out of the home. And so what I do in that chapter on, on fatherhood is I'm not averse to appealing to people's self-interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I show... Instead of scolding fathers, you know, that's kind of what the typical message is of, you know, fathers, you need to step up to the plate. One of my graduate students is a um, head of the women's ministry at at a large Baptist church. 
-hmm. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I was very careful not to use a scolding tone in this book. Instead, I said, you know what? Science is showing that men themselves actually um, enjoy being a father more than they anticipated. There's a, a whole set of neurons that psychologists, mm-hmm. psychologists have dubbed it the dad brain. There's a nest of neurons that does not get activated unless you become a father. Mm-hmm. So in becoming a father, you literally ex- experience brain growth. Um, mm-hmm. And they, men also have oxytocin. You know, we, we've known that women, when they're pregnant and give birth, they experience a rise in oxytocin, which is called the bonding hormone, mm-hmm. right? It's a little biochemical boost to help mothers attach to these very mm-hmm. helpless infants. Um, well, it turns out that fathers also have an oxytocin boost. Um, it, it's stimulated by tactile sense. So they have to mm-hmm. be actually touching and holding their baby for it to really mm-hmm. be st- stimulated. Um, but it's a bonding hormone. You know, they too are biochemically primed to mm-hmm. to be fathers. And the most recent data, this one was really a surprise. It, it came from an anthropologist the, and this book just came out. Um, it's called The Life of Dad. And she said, we've now discovered that a man's oxytocin is going up all during his wife's pregnancy. All nine Mm -hmm. months, it's increasing. If he's living, you know, if the two are living together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess nobody thought to check a man's blood during his wife's pregnancy before. But when they did, they found out that it's increasing all those nine months. So uh, what's happening, I would say, is you you know, God has has built the male biology to mm-hmm. be biochemically primed, to be an attached, involved, loving, engaged father. Right. So, you know, that's why men, in fact, find the greatest fulfillment in the family. Yeah, that's really cool. It brought me back to visuals of my husband bouncing our little newborn babies when they'd be fussy in the evenings. And, you know, a lot of times it was like the skin to skin, like they wanted to just be on his chest. And I felt such a relief seeing him be able to calm them down and me not being the only one. And I know they attached to him so much because he was there for them and he was involved in their life from, you know, day one. And and he was a partner, you know, with me. It wasn't like I'm the main parent. It was like, no, we're together in this. And obviously we have different roles, but yeah, just a beautiful picture of how God actually physiologically designed our bodies to even support that entire thing. Um, that's really cool. I had no idea about the oxytocin, uh, oxytocin thing. Well, and, and there's another uh, study uh, by an anthropologist. This one, um, this one was global. So um, it, it was the first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And so, you know, they differ some from culture to culture. But what he found was universal among all cultures around the globe is that all of them expect that the good man will perform what what this anthropologist called the three P's, provide, protect, and procreate. Become a parent, become a father, have a family, build into the next generation. So provide, protect, procreate. I thought this was really encouraging because what it means is these were not cultures with a Christian background. This is apparently just intrinsic to the male character. There's an inherent innate knowledge among men that they're increased, you know, their their unique masculine strength, right? Because men are bigger, stronger, faster. Testosterone makes them Mm -hmm. more aggressive and risk-taking. Those are all their unique masculine strengths. But 
universally around the globe, they sense that those strengths were not given them to get whatever they want, to dominate others, you know, uh, to, to uh, control and oppress the people around mm -hmm. them. They inherently know that that was given them to provide, protect, take care of, and if necessary, fight for those that they love. I would say men are made in God's image. And so that's why they have this innate knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, or you might call it general revelation, right? General, that's a theological term, meaning what we know just from living in God's world, you know, apart from the Bible, which is special revelation, mm -hmm. general revelation means what we can kind of pick up on just from living in God's creation and being made in God's image. So uh, I, I was very encouraged by that to know that mm -hmm. universally men do know what it means to be a, a good man. And, and it means perhaps there's a different way to approach these issues too. Uh, men don't respond very well to being called toxic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who who would? And so a better approach is to, can we tap into this innate knowledge, this innate aspiration to be a good man? Mm -hmm. That gives us a much more positive approach to these issues. Right. Yeah, like you said, men don't like being called toxic. And when you do that, and when you do that long enough, what you produce is a generation of young men who are following the footsteps of Andrew Tate and who look to him as their response to that. Right. And yet you and I know that the Bible has a better answer for us. So, um, you know, how would you, um, encourage mothers listening who have young sons or potentially if they share this with their husband or, um, even wives to encourage and build up their husbands, what would be your response to, you know, this kind of, um, secular, masculinity response of the Andrew Tates of the world as compared with the Christian, the truly Christian response? What, what does that look like? Yeah. I'm glad you asked because um, th that really was the ultimate trigger for writing this book is I ran mm -hmm. into sociological studies of Christian men and I was blown away because their findings were so positive that Christian men who are really committed to their faith test out as the most loving husbands and fathers. So they were, the men themselves were tested, their wives were questioned separately, separately which is important. Mm -hmm. And so their wives were also reporting the happiest levels in terms of their husband's expression of love and affection. Evangelical men test out as spending the most time with their children, 3.5 hours more per week than secular men both in terms of uh, shared activities like sports and church mm -hmm. youth group, and in terms of discipline, like um, setting limits on screen time or mm -hmm. uh, enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate of any ma major group in America, 35% uh, lower than secular men, and they have the lowest level of domestic abuse and, and violence, lower than any other group in America. And the reason this is so surprising, of course, is that the media narrative is that Christian men are exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. When I was writing my book, it was very easy to find quotes, but I'll mm -hmm. give you just one of them. Um, so this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which was uh, after the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Hmm. And what happened is the social scientists were looking at accusations like this and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. Hmm. And I referenced oh, some dozen or so studies in my book. 
And th and they found out that the media narrative is completely wrong. They completely debunked it. And the, the only trouble is I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this. Mm. This is not out in the public yet. And so I said, okay, this is this is my final reason for writing this book. I need to get this information both out into the church, you know, to encourage Christian men, the mm -hmm. ones who are attending church regularly, who are taking their faith seriously. They are doing a good job. We should not be scolding them, like, like the story I told you from my student. Right. We should not be scolding them. We should be encouraging them and lifting them up. And it also is good for apologetics purposes. In other words, taking it into the public square and showing that the, the public narrative, the secular narrative on Christian men is completely wrong. That, and, and this isn't just, you know, a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid, empirically based social science research. It's evidence-based findings that shows that Christianity, well, that Christianity does have the power to reconcile the sexes, which is the subtitle of my book. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is so fascinating. And I, I love that you've continued to highlight that we need to encourage men and build them up because they are getting beat up on so much by culture. They definitely don't need more beating up on from us inside the church. I want to tell you about a new sponsor that I'm so excited about, and that is We Heart Nutrition. We Heart Nutrition is a pro-life company that offers the highest quality vitamins available for women. They are patriotic, family-owned, run by husband and wife duo Jacob and Kristen. They have four young kids, and they saw a big hole in the vitamin industry for a company with wholesome ingredients, but also wholesome values. Now, supplements are not required by the FDA to be third-party tested, but We Heart Nutrition does that anyway because they want you to know what is in the vitamins that you're taking. Their supplements use the highest quality, research-backed ingredients, always in the most bioavailable form, which means that your body can actually absorb them unlike many other brands. They're unapologetically pro-life and donate 10% of sales off the top directly to Christian pregnancy care centers. Most of the major multivitamins are owned by corporations that donate directly to Planned Parenthood. Ones that I have used, I did not even realize this, Ollie and Smarty Pants owned by Unilever, One A Day owned by Bayer, Centrum and Emergency owned by Pfizer. So if you want to put your money towards a company that supports your values and will deliver top tier quality supplements and vitamins, visit weheartnutrition.com and use code KINDLED for 20% off your first order. That is weheartnutrition.com, code KINDLED for 20% off your first order. You know, just just for balance, it's a good idea to say the um, the pushback I get is, but wait a minute, haven't we heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as anyone else? Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, in my research, I found that that is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And so the researchers went back to the data and they made a very crucial distinction. They said, OK, here's the evangelical men who actually attend church and are committed. But, you know, in America, we have a lot of nominal Christians. Uh, my students know, don't even know what the word nominal means. So I tell them N-O-M is Latin for name. So it means mm -hmm. in name only. So what that means is these are men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, um, but they don't actually attend church or rarely, if at all. It's more of a cultural background, a family background. And these men test out shockingly different. They fit all of the toxic stereotypes. Um, their, their wives report the lowest level of happiness with the way their husbands treat them. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They are the most likely to divorce 20% more likely than secular men. Mm. And then the real shocker is they are the 
that they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, higher than secular men. And so when we hear studies of evangelicals, you know, the numbers are often skewed and misleading because they're capturing they're capturing, you know, men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And I think this is an important thing for our, our churches to know about too, that while while we're get, encouraging the men who are doing a good job, and, and by the way, you said even our Christian men are um, beaten down. Let me uh, give you this story. Uh, when I told my class at Houston Christian Baptist University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. So I thought, okay, mm-hmm. you know, even at a Christian college, they feel this way. So while we're supporting Christian men, we also need to think about well, how do we reach out to these nominals who are identifying as evangelical and can fool a lot of people? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm thinking especially of young women who are looking for someone to date, you know, someone who mm-hmm. claims to be evangelical, but who actually are worse than secular men. And, and sometimes people ask me, well, why would they be even worse? You know, And if it looks like, from what I can tell from what, what they say in, in, in surveys, um, they feel like they have religious justification. Like this, mm. the, the, you know, the secular guy who's maybe hitting his wife and kids mm-hmm. doesn't feel any special justification for that. But the nominal Christian looks at words like headship and submission and says, oh, I have religious justification for what I'm doing. And so he ends up actually testing out as more abusive than the secular man. So mm. this is a huge challenge I think to the church is how do we reach out and disciple these men who are sort of on the fringes of the Christian church mm-hmm. but but who are but who are living according to a secular script for masculinity right that makes total sense that yeah the nominal would be the ones that are you know uh, using and abusing religion rather than actually living from a transformed heart and a, and a new heart that actually longs to glorify God and obey him for his glory and not for his own. So yeah, that's a very important distinction for sure. Um, so what are the two scripts, you know, that, that really men are, have to choose between the, the two competing scripts for masculinity? Cause like, I, I mean, I'm interested to lean into what that student said, you know, it's been beaten out of us. Like, what are you talking about masculinity? You know, how does, how does any man today, even pursue that in light of the current cultural moment and what we are being told all the time is wrong with society. And that is masculinity, you know? So, so what are the, what are the options there? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the background to that. Um, when, I, when I was writing this book, I, I taught classes on it. I led reading groups on it. I like to get lots of feedback and rough off, uh, rub off the rough edges. And uh, when they would tell their family and friends, in other words, people who weren't actually reading it, just hearing about it, invariably the first question was whose side is she on mm-hmm. you know with that tone but whose side is she on uh and by the way the second question was always and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway <laughs> um but but men tended to assume that a woman writing a book she that i would be a male bashing feminist right more progressive types tended to assume that i was maybe some angry defensive reactionary culture warrior <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so I put this study on the two scripts of masculinity uh, right at the beginning of the book. You know, when you talk about the two scripts, that's a product of a study that was done by a sociologist. You know, he's not a Christian. And, and once again, it was global. That's what's so interesting about this, because it encompasses all different cultures around the world. And since he's invited to speak around the world, he came up with this clever experiment where he'd ask young men two questions. 
he would say, what does it mean to be a good man? Right. If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no problem answering that. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Look out for the little guy, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. Mm -hmm. And the sociologist would say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, I don't know, it's just in the air we breathe. <laughs> but if they were in a Western country, by the way, they would often say it's part of a Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm -hmm. But then he would follow up with the second question. And he would say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, you know, suck it up, play through pain, uh, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. In other words, the Andrew Tate model. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the sociologist concludes that this seems to be inherent right now, that men do, it's back to that earlier study, that men do inherently innately know what it means to be the good man. I mean, this part of it is incredibly encouraging, you know, that men are made in God's image and they do have that sense of what it means to, to use their strength for, for goodness, for good ends. Um, but they're feeling cultural pressure to be the quote unquote real man, mm -hmm. um, which are the traits we might consider more toxic, at least if disconnected from a moral ideal, it becomes the Andrew Tate who says, you know, I'm going to use my, I'm going to build up my masculine strength, but, you know, I'm going to do it to uh, put women on doing pornographic movies on OnlyFans, mm -hmm. videos on uh, OnlyFans, right. you, you know, and, and I mean, when you watch his actual videos, you know, he says he seduces these women, but, and they, he, and he said, he said this directly on one of his videos, they think I care about them, but I don't, of course not. I'm just using them to get rich. Mm -hmm. So that's the model. Fast cars, fast money, fast women. Yeah. So, so again, it, it shows us what we're up against. Uh, inherently, you know, can we tap into what uh, the good man, you know, men's inherent knowledge of that, um, you know, it, as a way of sort of gaining and uh, becoming an ally of what they already have in terms of the good, the good part <laughs> um, and, and help them realize that that's what they truly aspire to. Um, and that it's the culture that's pressuring to, them to be um, the, 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 more, the, the more toxic traits. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I want to I want to ask you kind of a final question as we wrap up, just to be fair in, in, in the interest of covering something we've already mentioned and hit on a little bit, that problem of abuse in Christian homes and the fact that, you know, you did mention a lot of those statistics are coming from those who are really nominal Christians and, and using the Bible, quote unquote, to, you know, to for their own good, their own end and not for the glory of God, which would have them obviously behaving in a way that would glorify God and not um, not themselves. But, you know, how do we as as Christians and how do churches respond more effectively to that? Take those take those um, those issues where they exist seriously uh, while, you know, continuing to support and uphold that biblical, um, ideal and definition of manhood and masculinity. Yes, because nominal Christian men have higher rates of abuse and domestic violence than even secular men. I obviously had to deal with that. Otherwise mm -hmm. it would look like I was, you know, sweeping it out of the carpet. Yeah. So at the end of the book, I do have two chapters on abuse in Christian homes. And, um, 
and we're at a good place right now because in the past, pastors and, and you know, books on abuse and so on held the woman responsible. <laughs> they, I mean, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, especially with this physical abuse, it is the man who's the husband who's being the abuser, mm -hmm. which is not surprising. He's bigger and stronger, you know, and it's more likely to be the woman who ends up injured or in the hospital or, or even mm -hmm. killed. 50% of women, 50% of female homicides are intimate partner. That's husbands, former husbands, boyfriends, and former boyfriends. 50% of mm -hmm. female murders. So, um, so yes, we need to talk about this. Um, and in the past, women were made responsible. Uh, I have so many stories of Christian women who say this, but I remember reading it myself. Um, the woman is told, well, if you would just submit more, submit is a big word, of course, but if you would just love more unconditionally, if you would just forgive more, if you would just make his favorite foods more, if you would lose weight and look better, mm -hmm. um, he would, he would, you know, he, he would, as as one pastor put it to an abused woman, he said, if you would do these things, he would blossom into the man you want him to be. Well, unfortunately, that's just not human nature. And we all know that in other mm -hmm. contexts. You know, this is not mm -hmm. how you get a bully to stop being a bully, you know, whether right. it's on the playground or whether it's in international affairs with a belligerent nation. If you mm -hmm. acquiesce and placa placate, you know, the bully gets worse. They don't right. get better. And so fortunately... Christian therapists, Christian theologians are starting to write books now saying, no, actually, the correct way to respond to abuse is what Jesus said in Matthew 18, which is if somebody's sinning against you, you call them out. You call them to mm -hmm. accountability. You tell them this is sin. This is wrong. Mm -hmm. And if they don't listen to you, you bring in a few witnesses. If they don't listen to them, you bring it to the church. And if, you, if he doesn't listen to the church, um, you look at possibly church discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, for some reason, Matthew 18 has been applied everywhere except in marriage. But fortunately now, um, books are coming out saying, you know, a woman does not have the power to change an abusive man by just being nicer. Yeah. Uh, which is true. That's just human nature. Um, and so they're starting to say now uh, the church needs to support women in, in calling these men to accountability. It's sin. Right. If, mm -hmm. if somebody is truly sinning now, you know, I, I was talking to a pastor the other day who said, well, you have to realize um, most of the cases that come to the pastoral office are not the truly abusive ones. We're used to being able to say, oh, love more, forgive more, because, you know, in mar most marriages, that's a good that's a good strategy. Right? Mm -hmm. We should all start there. We should all start with loving and forgiving and and showing grace. Um but there are, and so that's one reason pastors haven't really caught on to this quickly enough. I think that no, there is a small subset of truly abusive marriages, and what what works in a healthy marriage does not work in a truly abusive marriage. In an abusive marriage, you really do have to apply the Matthew eighteen principle, mm -hmm. and, and so this is the good news. Yes, that that, that m more and more books are coming out on the subject. If if you're in an abusive situation, anyone listening to this. Um, not only read those two chapters, but I have excellent resources in the end notes as well. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Well, wrapping up, you know, I guess my final question would just be to encourage, um, you know, again, the main audience here is women, but how can they encourage their husbands, um, you know, as fathers to be more involved in their children's lives and how can they support them, um, 
you know, just in the day to day and, and affirming the very important roles that fathers do have. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was writing this book was the command to all of us, right? Jesus saying the great, the greatest command is love, love God, love others. And I thought, wait a minute, that's kind of counter to the typical masculine script that your main goal in life is to love. We, we don't stop and think about that often enough. I think many men would not, if you said, what's your main goal in life, they wouldn't say love. Mm -hmm. But Jesus says that should be your main goal in life. So that kind of opens up a whole new dimension of, you know, a man is supposed to be emotionally connected to his mm -hmm. wife and kids and that he himself is following Jesus' greatest command when he does that. And, and you you touched on something for a minute earlier that that we might go back to when you said, um, you know, our culture acts as though you know, mothers are the primary parent mm -hmm. and that they know they know better. You see, that came out of the 19th century as well. That was new in the 19th century. That had never been thought before. Fathers mm -hmm. were always the primary parent, as I mentioned in the colonial era. But also, men were thought to be spiritually and morally superior to women. Mm -hmm. Not that that was always a good thing, but just to show how different this is, all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, it was thought that men were morally superior. And their reasoning was this. The insight into right and wrong is a rational insight. And they thought men were more rational. And therefore, mm -hmm. they thought men were more virtuous. Mm -hmm. In fact, the word virtue comes from the Latin. V-I-R means man, as mm -hmm. in the word virile. Yeah. So the word virtue had overtones of manly strength and honor. And so it was really a huge turnaround in the 19th century when people began to say, oh, no, no, you know, women are more spiritual. Women are more moral. Women are better at raising the kids because of that. You know, that was the main reason given, right? Mm -hmm. Because women are morally superior, they're going to be able to guide their children better. Well, that was completely new. Mm -hmm. And why did it happen? Um, the main reason is that America was becoming more secular. And the Industrial Revolution, as I mentioned earlier, you know, took men out of the home, but it also created a very large public sphere of uh, large institutions like factories and offices and financial institutions and universities and the state. Mm -hmm. And people began to say that the public square should be operating by scientific principles, by which they meant value-free. You know, don't bring your private values into the public realm, which is what we still hear today. And so it was men who were getting that secular education and working in that secularized work environment. And so men became secular earlier than women did. And again, you see this in the literature of the day. People began to complain that men were not attending churches often. They were not governing their behavior by a biblical ethic. And meanwhile, where did values go? Well, if they were kicked out of the public square, they were relegated to the private sphere and where women still presided. And so that's why women were said to be morally superior because suddenly they had, you know, it was part of their domain right. to, to worry about values, to worry about altruism and love and compassion and all of these, all of these values that had been kicked out of the public square. And so that, that tension between men and women, you know, that, that somehow, you know, men are just more naturally prone to sin advice and it's women who have to hold them in check. That, that tension started in the 19th century. And I say that the, the solution, a biblical response should have been, you know, not, not, let's not let the public square be secularized, right? A Christian worldview is supposed to apply to all of life, including our public life. 
including how we run our businesses, including how, you know, our universities. Um, and, and so the the bigger, you know, the, it's part of the bigger question of how did American society get secularized and how did men in particular sort of get caught into the secular script? And I think, uh, and you ask, what can women do then? Well, <laughs> you can't count to something if you don't recognize it, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if you read my book, mm -hmm. you'll get a better understanding of what the secular script is so that we especially equipping our young boys um one of my uh graduate students said all, all of her all of her kids all of her male students are followers of andrew tate now and she teaches in a christian classical school so that they don't have the critical grid in place they, they don't know how to think critically about the secular view and so with our children and our husbands we do have to help them to recognize when they're absorbing a secular script yeah and to do that they need to understand what it is and how you know and how it contrasts with a christian with a christian with a biblical script for masculinity yes 100 percent. and you um you mentioned it there at the end but uh i want to just encourage everyone to grab a, a copy of the toxic war on masculinity from um professor nancy piercy and uh and just you know, equip yourself. Like you said, you, you're not gonna be able to respond unless you first understand the problem and you see where it came from so that you can address that when, you know, various, uh, teachers, speakers, podcasters, authors, whatever, Instagram personalities, YouTubers, right. Come out and say all of these things that maybe sound good. And maybe even as a Christian conservative parent, you think, oh, that's the right response to culture. Um, but replacing, you know, um, if we don't replace error with truth, then, you know, all we're doing is swinging in, in another direction of error, equal and opposite error. And that's not actually going to help anyone. And it's not going to um, lead to more happy or fulfilled or whole or thriving young men, which I know every mom listening wants to see in her son. So um, how can people connect with you and where can they buy your book? Yeah, so you can buy the book on Amazon, just like you can buy everything on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, or if you prefer, places like christianbook.com. And uh, and um, my publisher generously redesigned my website. So come on over and see that. It's nancypiercy.com. And Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. So okay. nancypiercy.com. And you can browse my other books. Um, you mentioned my earlier book, Love Thy Body. Mm -hmm. um, you can check it out. You can... Mm -hmm. uh, look at, at the other books I've written, read the endorsements and, and right. you can leave a message. Um, there's a place to leave a, a message. You can, uh, I don't have time to answer all of them, but I read them. So yeah. come on by nancypiercy.com and, and say hello. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nancy. It was awesome to talk with you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. As always, thanks for listening. I hope that conversation encouraged and equipped you. Come find me on Instagram at Haley.Kindled. Um, say hello. Until then, uh, have a great week. See you next time on Kindled. <laughs>